the best, 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 best of Cresta in the Afternoon countdown. Number one. 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 Good afternoon, I'm Al Cresta. In preparation for a talk I gave at the Defending the Faith Conference this year in Steubenville, I spent a lot of time in the letter to the Hebrews. And in fact, uh, I also realized what uh, E.P. Sanders, the great New Testament scholar, once wrote, that it's almost impossible to make too much of the temple in first century Jewish Palestine. My guest uh, is the man who I think has done extraordinary work in helping Catholics recover this sense of God's temple presence. And uh, Dr. Stephen Smith is a nationally known, uh, recognized speaker. He's author of The House of the Lord, A Catholic Biblical Theology of God's Temple Presence in the Old and New Testament. He's chair and professor of biblical exegesis at the University of St. Mary of the Lake and Mundelein Seminary in Illinois. Previously, he taught scripture at Mount St. Mary Seminary in Emmitsburg, Maryland, where, which is where I actually first uh, contacted Stephen. Stephen, good to have you with me again. Thanks. Al, it's great to be with you and all of your audience. Thanks for having me so much. Let's, let's go to this, this statement of E.P. Sanders, that it's almost yeah. impossible to make too much of the temple in first century Jewish Palestine. Uh, I remember. Go oh, ahead. Go ahead. I, was no. gonna say, I remember reading that book like you when you when you mentioned that quote. I, I chuckled because it's actually on page eight <laughs> of the introduction. And here's the exact quote. He says, "I think it is almost impossible to make too much of the temple in the first century Jewish Palestine." And he goes on to say, "Modern people think of religion without sacrifice that they fail to see how novel." that that idea is. And that came, that came from a book he wrote in the early 80s, I want to say, or, or early 90s, I want to say 94, 93, mm-hmm. called The Historical Figure of Jesus. And I remember reading it, and like you, it just struck me as uh, quite a statement. It really, uh, and I have to confess, I, it's something I still uh, strive to understand uh, and mm-hmm. feel that temple presence more clearly. Are Catholics actually better situated to grasp this idea of the temple, the significance of the temple in our worship uh, than most Protestants? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I think so, but they maybe don't always know how to articulate it. Okay. (laughs) You know what I mean? as, As I talk with lifelong Catholics, one of the big differences I still see, even with all the advances that we have and you know, we've got, you know, Word on Fire and YouTube and all these media resources and Scott Hahn, and these are wonderful things. But I still find that just the, the, the rank-and-file Catholic going to Mass on Sunday loves the Lord, loves the Eucharist, and loves the Bible. But putting all those things together sometimes is, is a little difficult to sometimes articulate it. But I, I do think, because this book that I wrote and um, is really very liturgically oriented, and mm-hmm. it begins with the temple theme all the way back in creation, and it moves, of course, through the Law and the Prophets and the rest of the Old Testament into the New, where really the high point of the book is, you know, John's proclamation that Jesus was speaking of the temple, yeah. of his body, and moving on into Revelation. So it certainly is there for all to see, Catholics, Protestants, Jews, all. Um, I, I do think we're well-positioned, but as I said, I think we can use a little bit of help, and that's kind of why I wrote this book. Indeed. Let's... Uh... 
When most people think of the temple, they think uh, Solomon's temple, um, and then they think of the rebuilding of the temple uh, and uh, the, the period of time that Jesus lived, uh, sometimes called Second, Second Temple Judaism. Uh, but you make the point that really this side, the reality of God's temple presence goes all the way back to creation. And most people would say, yeah. well, I look at the Garden of Eden, I don't see any uh, structure there called the temple. So take right. us back to the garden sure. and how that is the temple yeah, presence sure. in the garden. And as I do, I've got to give credit, speaking of our, our Reformed and uh, Protestant brothers and sisters, I've got to give credit not only to Sanders, but to a few others as I answer this for you. Not to say that, you know, it was reading a few of the really more erudite Protestant academics uh, that really led me to, you know, to this topic and to this book. So Sanders is one. Uh, another is a guy, some some may know this name, uh, Greg Beale. Sure. Or G.K. Mm-hmm. Beale. And he wrote a book called The Temple and the Church's Mission, A Biblical Theology of the Dwelling Place of God. It's a very good book, but um, as um, with respect to Beale, <clears throat> who I know a little bit, um, John Bergsma uh, and I... Uh, Last when my book came out, he said, I'm really glad because I felt like it was the Catholic response to <laughs> what was there and was wonderful, but maybe it was missing some things. Yeah. So what we start with what's in common, I think both someone like Beale and myself recognize that there is this sometimes very visible, sometimes it's a little bit more subtle theme going all the way back, yes, to creation and then tracing through the scripture. But then, as I said, you know, I think there's more from a Catholic perspective to fill in here, the sacraments, the Eucharist, yep. and more. But to get to get to your question... Um, no, I mean, I think it's not necessarily obvious, especially for, uh, you know, modern English readers that are just looking at the Bible and seeing, okay, we have the six days of creation. You know, how is that in any way about the temple? Doesn't that come later with Moses? And the answer is sort of like, well, it does in some sense. You have that, you know, uh, tabernacle and the instructions in the book of Exodus, and then from there, you know, you eventually get the, the temple of Solomon and so on. But if you actually look more carefully, there are a number of clues that really strike you as strange when you read uh, the Old Testament. I actually want to begin with a quote for you and your audience from the book of Ezekiel. Sure. By way of explaining Genesis, um, there's a passage in Ezekiel, in Ezekiel 28, where the prophet says, you were, in, you were in Eden, the garden of God. Now, a little bit of context here. We're obviously in a prophetic book, not the law, and Ezekiel's actually addressing uh, the king of Tyre and Sidon, but that's not really the point. The point is that he's dressing this man up like Adam, but in the process of his of his sort of praise of this of this pagan king, in a sense, he goes on to say, "You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering, and he names topaz and diamonds and all that." But then he says, "This, um, you were an anointed garden cherubim. I placed you there. You were on the holy mountain of God." And that, that strikes you as odd, right? Because we tend to think of the geography as, of Eden as very, very flat. We right. think of, you know, sometimes the caricature of a, a nude man and woman with an apple in front of a two-dimensional <laughs> tree, kind of a, almost a cartoonish picture. Right, of course, right. that's not the biblical vision. The, the vision is glorious and awesome. And what I think Ezekiel is, is hinting at here is there's more to that topography than meets the eye. But it's not simply one stray verse in Ezekiel. When you go back to um, Genesis 1 and 2 alone, there are a number of clues, uh, one that, again, wouldn't be necessarily um, obvious for many English readers, is the very name of God that's used in Genesis. Um, Catholics will know the term El Shaddai, mm-hmm. right? It's one of these many Hebrew terms, but it really means something like the God 
uh, the god of the mountain, El, the god of the mountain. And that's kind of interesting when you put that together with, uh, with Ezekiel there. And so when you actually begin to study the topography, you know, see so you have four rivers flowing out of Eden. Well, you know, rivers tend to flow and follow the gravity and go southward or outward. Right. And so you get this vision then eventually when you put it all together of something much more uh, three-dimensional, something glorious and majestic that I uh, and a lot of other scholars have identified here as Mount Eden. And that would be maybe the starting place to see not simply a flat garden, but really a majestic vista with a garden and then, uh, I should say, a mountain and then a garden in uh, or on that mountain. And what you eventually get at when you put it all together, the image of Adam as a priestly figure, which comes in chapter 2, and some of this topography, is you get this image of a kind of a primordial or cosmic temple. So on the mountain is a holy of holies, that's the garden. And then you get eventually this image of Adam as a royal and priestly figure who's called to tend to that sanctuary. So, and then it kind of just builds from there. Huh. So the um, uh, Adam, so tell me then the, the dominion mandate that Adam receives. Uh, uh, yeah. So how does that relate to his priesthood? Sure. So, I mean, we're, we're, we're told that God places Adam in the garden, and he's taken out of the ground, right? He's made from the dust of the earth, and mm -hmm. to the dust he shall return. But uh, as he places him in the garden, one of the things, you know, the first commandment that we get in the Bible, many Catholics will know this, is, of course, because it's so endemic and so important in our, our right to life and in just the whole pro-life movement, is be fruitful and multiply. Mm -hmm. And so we, we tend to associate that with this, uh, with this gift of natural life, and indeed it is. But I've, I've also begun to see much more in that first commandment to be fruitful and multiply. Because if you finish it off, and it says, and fill the earth. Okay, so here, so let's just pause yeah. and think about it. Here's this man, Adam, who's called in a royal and kingly and priestly way to be the governor and high priest of God's garden, and to order it and to perfect it. Even the naming of the animals and all that, as we know, shows this kind of royal stewardship He's a co-regent with God, as he's mm -hmm. sometimes called. Mm -hmm. But he's also a priestly figure. What do priests do? Priests offer sacrifice to God. That's what makes them different than just pastors or, you know, reverence is priests offer sacrifice. Right. right? And so um, my good friend, some will know, Michael Barber, has often made the case, if you move a couple chapters over to chapter 3, that one of the ways that Adam is being portrayed is sort of as a delinquent priest in the sense that he's in the garden, He's called to steward it. He's called to have union with Eve, his uh, wife, the woman. And yet when the serpent comes in from outside the garden, this great threat, something more like a dragon or a leviathan than a little garter snake. Mm -hmm, uh, mm -hmm. But nevertheless, uh, where, where is he? Right. And actually it's interesting. If you look at some of the older Jewish texts that come out of rabbinic Judaism, like a book called the Book of Jubilees, written just before the time of Christ, it actually fills in the cracks and says, you know, Adam, you were delinquent. You were, you were off when you should have been uh, there and defending your wife and laying down your wife. Okay, laying down your wife for your wife at this threat. And so what Barber does is he says, this is an image of a, a priest who is, is not focused. He's not, he's not sacrificial. He's not self-sacrificial. He's not willing to lay down his life. He's not willing to engage the threat. And indeed, it is ambiguous. When, when the conversation happens, right, between the the serpent and the woman, he doesn't speak initially. Right. He's very silent. But some early Jews, as I said, even made the argument that he was in another part of the garden. But the big picture then is that sort of he's, he's, he is cast out along with Eve out of the garden. So the one who's called to protect it 
is cast out. And what's interesting then is to go back to that statement, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth, is the idea that this high priest of the garden would then not only sanctify the garden, but as Lumen Gentium says, to consecrate the world, right? And so his call ultimately is to go out into the world to be a missionary. Um, unfortunately, he gets off to a bad start because he's sort of booted out of the garden rather than going <laughs> off with right. a crusader flag over his head. Right, you know, right. He goes out in, in humility and in sinfulness and now very aware of his mortality with Eve. And then, then it goes from there. But, but And there's much more here than obviously we can fill in in a short conversation. Sure. But in the chapters on Genesis, I lay out some of the Hebrew terms. I'll just give you one more. In Genesis 2.15, uh, uh, Adam is said to uh, serve and uh, protect or till or till the soil uh, and, and, and all of this stuff. To till and keep the land is how it sometimes comes out in the translation. So that's a very poor translation in those terms, avad and shamar, uh, to, to till and, and to work, are I'll, really priestly terms. I'll tell you what, hold it there, Stephen, we'll come right back. The best. 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 Of Cresta in the Afternoon Countdown. Number one. 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 Good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta. I'm with Dr. Stephen Smith, author of The House of the Lord, a Catholic biblical theology of God's temple presence in the Old and New Testaments. Uh, first segment, we were taking a look at God's temple presence uh, in the garden and uh, Adam as the uh, high priest. And uh, we're talking about the, Adam's delinquency as priest and then... Um, uh, at the close of the last segment, we're talking about some of the language that's used to describe Adam's task at tilling the soil. And I'll let you pick it up from there uh, again, Stephen, if you don't mind. Yeah, so it's really interesting. And a number of scholars, Gordon Wenham is a great uh, Old Testament scholar, has pointed this out in his commentary, the words biblical, and others have. Beale talks about it, I talk about it, John Bergsman does. So it's, it's definitely the evidence is strong. But yeah, we're talking about this verse in Genesis 2, where we often get the sense that Adam is sort of a horticulturalist. He's just a gardener. Right, right. And uh, he's called a till and keep the land. But then under those are these very interesting Hebrew words. I'll spell them out for those that, you know, most don't know Hebrew, but avad, spelled A-B-A-D, and shamar, S-H-A-M-A-R. And what's interesting, Al, is those two words, as I was saying before the break, really come out of liturgical language out of the book of Leviticus, talking about the roles of the priest in the temple. Wow. And it's interesting, is we actually did a study, and of the, um, of the vast number of occurrences of those words, the majority of the time when they occur within just about 10 words of one another, they always refer to this, this priestly vocation, this pre- priestly activity. And there's more priestly uh, hints as well as you move throughout the, the Old Testament. But I, and I think, I think this is something... Um, to go back to our earlier conversation that, you know, we as Catholics understand the role of the priesthood, both, uh, the you know, the ordained priesthood and also the priesthood of the baptized. And I think this has been maybe a blind spot for some Protestants to not seeing this temple theme. In fact, when I get to the New Testament, Al, I explained to uh, the readers that um, in the 20th century, there was really a degradation of the whole idea of Jesus as a priestly figure. Hmm. It kind of is, uh, especially in Protestant circles, you see this in the kind of critical circles. He's not a really priestly figure, and certainly his apostles are not. Well, right. Where does that come from? And I think, I think, um, I, I do think, not to get into the philosophical too much, but I do think in the rationalism of the 19th century, there was this movement away from high church and liturgy and you know, kind of the, the Catholic 
sacramental view. And so in some of the German Protestant liberalism, you get this sort of you know, movement away from any of the, the priestly motifs in the Old and the New Testament. But, but fortunately, that's changing. You know, and just in the last 20 years, well, there was Beale's book, which is a wonderful book. I'm also thinking of a guy in um, Illinois here at uh, Trinity University, wonderful evangelical scholar whose name is Nick Perrin, uh, E-R-R-I-N. And he wrote a book called Jesus Jesus the Temple, and he wrote another one called Jesus the Priest. And it's just remarkable. I've shared this with some of my uh, Catholic seminarians, and when when I read the quotes, they're like, well, you know, who who is this? Some thesis in Rome or something? No, this is is an evangelical scholar. But he's willing to look at the evidence and say, you know, in the Bible, we begin to see these things, and you can't really, why deny them? Why, 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 Why deny them? They might be hidden for some, but for those that really study the Bible, they're pretty clear and evident once you have the proper tools to see them. So, I mean, this is this is this recovery of the the significance of the temple, the significance of the priesthood in the life of Jesus that's occurring in uh, you know evangelical Protestant circles. Uh, do you see? I didn't realize this a little bit off off uh, our theme, but I'm I'm curious. Sure. Do you see that? Those who are working in this field, uh, you mentioned Nicholas Parent, for instance, mm-hmm. Jesus the priest, and is there any? Do they begin to think sacramentally uh, as a result of these realizations? Yeah, that's a great question, and I'm not sure. I'm not sure if I can be very honest. I thought quite a bit about this. Is uh, I think there's sort of an awakening and an opening and a movement there in certain circles in Protestantism that is, that is open to it. But I'm not, I'm not quite sure that, you know, in, in his case or in others, that, that they're going to cross the Tiber yeah. anytime soon. I, yeah. I certainly think, though, that in many ways, um, they, what they're really doing is providing sort of an in-house critique to other Protestants to say, look, these are some of the things that, that we missed. And, you know, just to fill in the, the cracks on that, you can go all the way back to someone like Wellhausen, who had this, you know, four-source theory of the, um, of the Pentateuch. And without getting into the weeds on that, you know, these four sources that he had, the Yahwist and the Elohist mm-hmm. and the Deuteronomist and the priestly source, what's interesting, and I talk about this in the book, is he really lamented, Al, the fact that this, what he saw as the priestly source was all of that sacrificial stuff right, <laughs> that's in the Pentateuch, especially Leviticus, but other places too. Anything that smacked of priesthood and yeah. sacrifice and the burnt offering, he assigned to that latter view. But what he believed was that was a degradation of an earlier, more pristine Israelite religion. And what he saw as that more Israelite religion kind of looked more like Protestantism, right? In the sense that it was sort of like, you know, love thy neighbor and in sort of Bible and, you know, good yep. things, but sort of the moral law, but nothing that moved towards the sacramental economy. Yeah. And so, so that's in the background of the 19th century. And then that kind of floods into the 20th century and moves from the old to the new. So it's not a surprise that, you know, someone like Perrin and uh, even Beale, they're sort of in, in the minority because they've been educated in sort of that that whole movement is kind right. of not really see these things. Yeah. So I think it's I think it's a net plus though. Yeah. No. Very good. I, so back then to Adam, if I understand you correctly, Adam's purpose uh, was to, in some way, uh, had the fall not occurred, would have been to extend God's temple presence through through. Uh, further and further out through creation. Is that right? I think that's it. I think that's the basic idea. I wouldn't go too 
much further than that, take it to literally. And then I should say, to complicate matters a little bit, is that I do think that there's a kind of a dialogue going on between, um, let's say, these early books like Genesis and Exodus and Leviticus, the Pentateuch on one hand, and then those books that deal more substantially with the temple. So they're like the story of it in Kings, Second uh, Samuel, David's story, but also the Psalms, which really are the are, are the songbook of the temple, huh? And so, you know, some have said that, you know, the, the way that you would have experienced the temple of Solomon or even the, the temple that Jesus would have entered into in Herod's temple, you would have been reminded of creation. So there's a, there's a sense in which the temple is, to use catechism language, a sort of recapitulation, a kind of a, a perfecting, a renewing, a transforming of the creation. And I, I do think that, that that is a healthy way to look at it because... If you really think about what the whole movement towards the Holy Land was, was worship, right? And that's, that's, that's the right. aim of creation, is Sabbath. And so when you come into the more refined later period with the temple and the sacrifices and all the festivals, in some sense, it's kind of a going back to that original mandate, right? To be fruitful and multiply, to worship God in a self-sacrificial way and in a priestly way. And we're all called to this, right? Even mm-hmm. today as Catholics, we're called to, to live out that, that same mandate from Eden. Yeah, uh, it is it is very true that often when people talk about the, the story of the Exodus, it's, you know, Moses liberating the the Hebrews uh, from bondage in, in Pharaoh's Egypt, and there's a great story of uh, let my people go. But what's uh, often dropped is the purpose of letting those people go, that they might go and worship God. Indeed. That was the purpose Indeed. of the Exodus, was worship, not just liberation Indeed. in the abstract. That's true. So, very true. You mentioned... You know, it's no, go, go ahead. ahead. Yeah. yeah, no, I was, I mean, I was just going to say you... Yeah. No, go right ahead. Uh, well, so I was thinking, pondering your question about the, uh, you know, these scholars like Perrin and others, and what do they make of this? And I just had one additional thought, and that is, I don't know what the average Protestant person does with the following verse, which takes us into the New Testament, of course. But in John chapter 2, in that scene, you know, that we were referring to, John says, uh, in John 2, 21, but Jesus was speaking of the temple of his body. And I don't, I, don't, I don't know how you can really, well, first of all, you can't really make sense of what that means until you first know a little bit about temple theology. You know, so the temple is the dwelling place of God. So here is the divinity in person, but also it's the place where sacrifice is offered. So sacrifice of his own body. And you know, I think they might connect it to Calvary, to the cross, but I, I think that's where it would stop, unfortunately. Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. yeah it, it's they, they kind of it really weakens the imagery. Um, if, I mean, you go back to you quote from First Chronicles uh, five thirteen and fourteen, and I'll, I'll just uh, say it. Uh, it was the day. It was the duty of the trumpeters and singers to make themselves heard in unison in praise and thanksgiving to the Lord. And when the song was raised with trumpets and cymbals and other musical instruments in praise to the Lord, quote, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. The house, the house of the Lord was filled with a cloud so that the priests could not stand to minister because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled the house of God. Uh, so often when people think of temple, they think of ritual, they think of liturgy, but they don't necessarily think of this kind of dynamic presence of God with his right. people, of which, of course, Jesus is uh, the most vivid example of him with his people. Um, but 
I don't think that connection between Jesus, uh, the temple of his body, and this remarkable uh, kind of explosion of God's presence in the temple, I don't think those things are connected in the normal reading of uh, John chapter 2 there. So, yeah. Yeah, and especially for Catholics, though. I mean, the subtitle of this book is a Catholic biblical right. theology of God's temple presence. And so I'm hoping that many Catholics will pick this up and give it a go. It's it's not, I mean, it's not a, a dense or difficult read. No, it's not. It's got a you know, college degree, but it's, it, it certainly will be engaging. But I mean, I think, you know, I would say don't get lost in the details of these, you know, Hebrew words. And, you know, you can, you can take what you want from those, but read it for the narrative that I'm laying out and saying, what if it is the case that from the very beginning of the Bible to the very end, God has kind of painted a picture of what worship is intended to be? And that begins in the very opening words of the creation story, and it goes all the way to the end of Revelation, and in the sense in the bullseye there, of course, in the very center is are the Gospels. But it's you mentioned Hebrews, and certainly there, there are traces of it in, in the latter New Testament books, there's traces of it in um, in the wisdom books of the Old Testament. Um, as it turns out, I'm teaching a, a course on the wisdom books. Yeah. Uh, and some of my seminarians who love the scriptures have, you know, they've never read some of these books like Sirach. And we came to uh, the last chapter of Sirach, chapter 50. And um, it, it's, a, it's an iconium to the priest of Sirach's day. And I recommend any who are listening who um, are priests or deacons or studying or just know a priest or just love the priesthood, to read that chapter, Sirach chapter 50, and what you see is a glorious depiction of the roles of, of, of the priest, especially in our day when people you know, are questioning the relevance of you know, the priesthood and of the Catholic Church and you know, the abuse scandal and all these other things to remind ourselves of God's vision of priesthood. Very good. Stephen, hold it there. We'll come back. My guest, Dr. Stephen Smith, The House of the Lord, a Catholic biblical theology of God's temple presence in the Old and New Testaments. The best, 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 best of Cresta in the Afternoon Countdown. Number one. 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 Good afternoon, I'm Al Cresta. With me, Dr. Stephen Smith. He's the author of The House of the Lord, a Catholic biblical theology of God's temple presence in the Old and New Testaments. We started back in the Garden of Eden because I think for, for many people, that's the place where they would least think there's, quote, temple theology. But we also uh, have been, we've spent some time talking, of course, in the Mosaic Law, talking about the the uh, Solomonic Temple. And I wanted, Stephen, for you to pick up on this theme of the glory cloud, this this mm. idea that uh, in the tabernacle, you have the presence of the Shekinah glory, but in the temple, you also have this uh, glory of God that is uh, almost sensible. It's that tangible. What is this theme of the glory cloud, and where does it emerge finally in under the New Covenant? Yeah, well, that's a great question. So this Shekinah is this mysterious cloud, and we see it in some sense over Sinai, when Moses goes up in the cloud, it's, you might say it's this veil between, you know, mortal man and the, and the deity, right? So that, I mean, we know that um, a few different places in the Old Testament that God says, you cannot see my face and live. I'm thinking especially of Exodus 33, where Moses begs, you know, pray, show me your glory. Um, and I, I think there are a couple different ways that it comes into the New Testament. We'll get into that in, in a moment. But I think the idea of this is is 
we're losing this in some ways in our culture, this, this notion of mystery, this notion of the transcendent nature of God. I mean, I think one of the things that, you know, to, that our Protestant brothers and sisters do well is talk about the, Jesus as friend. And indeed, he is our friend with a mm-hmm. capital F. He is our friend. But, um, you know, the biblical vision of the triune God from, you know, from Elohim in the Old Testament all the way through the New Testament uh, in the person of Jesus and the Holy Spirit is a much more mysterious thing. And, you know, in the chapter, uh, I devote a whole chapter to Leviticus, I describe in great detail the preparation that the high priest had to make before going into what's called uh, the Kodesh Kodeshim, or the Holy of Holies, um, to, 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 to prepare for that awesome encounter. You don't just waltz into yeah. uh, the temple. Right. And so in that chapter, talk about, um, you know, um, it may sound strange, even a little bit off-putting to us, but, you know, the high priest would stay awake for seven nights prior to that. I can imagine doing that, what kind of, uh, you know, <laughs> energy drinks he had. Right, going right. In. But, but the idea would be to not even have, what, to put it politely, a nocturnal emission, right? Even an accidental emission, you know, so um, from his body, so that he would not in any way uh, bring impurity before the Lord. Mm-hmm. And now, you know, the, the modern person says, this is so much nonsense. I mean, can't we just relate and pray to God? And why does there all of this fear of God, and I think that really misses the mark. It, it's, you see in the ancient Jewish tradition this holy reverence for that Shekinah, that place where God himself dwells. And, of course, in Scripture, it's twofold. It's in the heavens above, God's heavenly home, but it's also in the Holy of Holies, so that he can really be encountered in a very personal way. And so let's take that idea forward. So, okay, so the high priest prepares himself, and then what does he do? He takes, there's a, a sacrifice, right, a sacrificial animal, and he takes some of that blood. He goes in and very carefully singing psalms, he sprinkles some of that blood sacrifice on what's called the mercy seat. That's over the Ark of the Covenant. And in so doing, he's atoning for his own sins and also for the sins of all of Israel. And it is true, the scripture talks about, and the rabbinic tradition talks about, a cord that would have been tied about his leg so that if God were displeased and smote him, they wouldn't have to go in. They could pull him out, uh, you know, in, in one fell swoop, mm. which tells you how seriously all of this was taken. Yes. But then you come into, you know, the New Testament, and you see, you know, in Matthew's Gospel, right, after the crucifixion, that that massive veil, huge, heavy, high purple veil, adorned with jewels, was torn in two, right? So it's exposing that holy place that was so revered all the way through Jewish tradition. And I think the Evangelist is telling us there's something remarkable Christologically about who Jesus is. He's the one who is the very presence of God, but also allows us that access. Right? Come unto me, all who are weary and heavy laden, I will give you rest. And then that's picked up also um, in, in the book of Hebrews as well. Uh, well there's a Marian connection here, too, because yeah. in, uh, in the book of Exodus, um, there's this, uh, this word that's used to describe the glory cloud in Exodus chapter 40. So just a little bit of context, Exodus chapter uh, 20 through 24 is the giving of the law, and then Exodus chapter 25 through 40 is where everyone falls asleep. No, it's not true, <laughs> but it is difficult because you get all these painstaking instructions um, in, uh, in, from God to Aaron and Moses in terms of uh, constructing the, uh, the tabernacle and all of the vestments and everything else for the tent of meeting. But then at the very end of it, in Exodus 40:34, we read, Then the cloud, this is that checking out that you're talking about, covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled 
the tabernacle. And this is the same word from the Septuagint of that book that is picked up in the story of Mary in the New Testament, I right? Know. Yes. The glory of the Lord is now, uh, and the Church Fathers saw this, so they saw that what was being hinted at in a kind of, you know, um, epiphany with Moses there in a mysterious way is now being uh, clothing the Blessed Virgin Mary as she uh, gives birth to the Savior of the world, who is the new temple. So a kind of direct connection between both the old and the new. And then you can go on into other other examples of this glory cloud, and as I said, in Hebrews. And then ultimately in Revelation, at the end of the Bible, you get this notion that it's the very heavenly temple coming down from heaven, which reveals the glory of God and gives radiance to all of humanity. No more tears, no more cancer, no more death, no more rape, no more, you know, trafficking, no more fill in the blank, mm-hmm. and, um, mm-hmm. and the Lord will be with his bride. So it is really a theme that moves swiftly and mysteriously through the whole of the Scripture. Uh, Jesus' phrase, <clears throat> something greater than the temple is here. Uh, mm. Tell me about that. Yeah. So, you know, he makes a couple of really interesting statements there in Matthew chapter 10, and one of them is, you know, something greater than the sign of Jonah is here, right? And there's that. So the comparison to the to the prophets, um, or, or, yeah, to the prophets. But something greater than the temple is kind of a mysterious one, because, again, if you see this only as a building where ancient Jews would go in and worship God, you're missing three-quarters of it. You're mm-hmm. missing the whole of it, right? Because the very idea is, as I said, with that high priest going in, you're coming into the very presence of God. And so I think his statement there is very much a Christological statement, very much a statement that uh, the evangelists are telling us, cueing us in to the very identity of Jesus as the divine son, as mm-hmm. the new Adam, as the one who's to be worshipped. Um, and so it's a very, very powerful statement. And again, I'm not, I, it's, it's not that Catholics don't hear these things. We hear these in the Mass. But then the question is, you know, how well are they being articulated and conveyed in homilies? Sometimes very well. Sometimes we can maybe do better. Yeah. And then um, what about beyond the liturgy? What can we do as moms and dads? What can we do as elementary school or high school teachers to help really bring this story uh, together for, for the people? And just one last thing I'll say is I had a seminarian recently who, who's a big fan of Scott Hahn and said, you know, Dr. Smith, how does this temple theme relate to the covenant? Because sure. I've been taught you know, by reading his books that that's the central theme. And I yeah. said, well, I, I think that there's not a competition here. Uh, I, I think that when you look at the story of the covenant, that temple is kind of the is that iconic image that accompanies the people all the way from creation, all the way you know through that covenantal story. As I said, the whole idea is to get to that land in the Old Testament where they can worship God, and so God's covenantal people worship, and that covenant is demonstrated through sacrifice, both old and new. So I think the two go together very much hand in hand. Mm-hmm. No, I, I agree. I agree. There's, there's no. Uh, necessary uh, competition here. Uh, I am I am concerned, though, that why what has to be done to help uh, our people recover this sense of uh, awe, this idea that when we gather uh, for worship and we have the liturgy. Uh, we are participants in that liturgy, that we are, in fact, uh, in a sense, being lifted up, calling down and being lifted up into that glory. And mm-hmm. what? And I agree, that the worship is meant then to extend out. Uh, 
to the other spheres yeah. of our life, our family life, and our, even our work life. Um, but how, I'm just curious, how does that, how, how does one go yeah. about eliciting from people that sense yeah. of awe? I'll be honest with you, Al, I think there's got to be, a, it's got to be, it's got to be a prayerful activity, right? Because right. It's, it's got to be multifaceted, all these things we talked about, education, school, friendships, all these things, and certainly in the church itself. But I, I think in some sense, and speaking especially to, to parents here, I think it has to begin far away from the temple, so to speak. You know, if you go back to the Psalms, and you look at Psalms uh, 120 through 33, 34, they're called the Psalms of Ascent. These were the songs, the psalms that the Jews that lived out in the diaspora would sing on the way into Jerusalem, on the way up to the temple. You read them, and they're beautifully Jerusalem-focused. They're beautiful. They talk about the exile and God's vindication and all the stuff and the house of the Lord. But my point in that is, you know, when you're a long way off from the temple, that is to say from the parish. So let's take how far away can you get Monday morning, you know? Uh, and, and so my, my point would be here is to, I, I don't think will have as effective results or success if we just say, well, we're going to make the kids get up early, we're going to say a rosary first, we're going to dress them up nicely, right. we're going to really make it a special day. I'm for all of those things, by the way. But I mean, I don't think that that's in itself enough. I think it's got to be holistic. It's got to integrate, um, you know, whether or not they go to the Catholic school, to be asking them about what they're learning, to be trying to make connections between the things that are going on in the culture, the things that their friends are talking about, even the music that they're listening to. And that, I don't mean in an invasive way to kind of like, you know, to, to smother the kids, but I simply mean having a kind of dynamic relationship where they can come and talk to you. Um, I think also even going outside. I mean, if one thing this book has taught me is that there is this kind of natural beauty back there in the book of Genesis, that the creation is a gift from God, mm-hmm. not just uh, something that, you know, we get in our car and go to work. And you know, so getting outside, um, enjoying, going on hikes, spending time in silence, and then certainly all those things that one would think when it comes to parish life. I mean, I do think how we approach the liturgy, how we dress, and how much time we allocate, and are we rushing in? Do we read the scriptures beforehand? So when we're there, we're, we're in a mental um, you know, place, and we, we've heard them, we know what's coming up. Do we have a relationship with our pastor or someone at the parish that, you know, the kids know they can talk to them? Um, how are we praying at home? Is it go beyond grace before and after meals? Uh, and then, you know, reading the Bible. I mean, that's the, lastly, reading the Bible, reading the Jesus story, reading the scriptures, and talking about that great story so that by the time hopefully they're 18 or 20, these kids have had a uh, a real saturation in, in kind of a lived temple theology. But I think it's, got a, it's, it's something that we need, you know, parish and school and teacher and parents and grandparents and all these things working together. Yeah, yeah, indeed. I, and it's going to take, again, us working together, innovating ways of better communicating these truths. Um, I, I just think your book's tremendous, and uh, I hope that uh, it's getting the support and promotion uh, that it deserves. Because I think you are you're connecting us with the biblical, the, the really the theme throughout the biblical narrative, which has the most immediate impact uh, on our lives, or at least our experience of worship. So, Stephen, thanks so much uh, for being with yeah, me today. Yeah, thanks so much, Al. We'll and, see you again. God yeah, bless you. let's talk soon. Dr. Stephen Smith, The House of the Lord, A Catholic Biblical Theology of God's Temple Presence in the Old and New Testaments. You really have to get a hold of this. And take, take your time, enjoy it, chapter by chapter. And then 
ask, how does this, how does this uh, relate to my own experience and the experience of my family? How do I enter into this more deeply?